You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, in our Philadelphia studio with my co-host, Lee Chen Ren. We're going to be talking with Timothy Reynolds, who's a senior portfolio manager and head of international equities for the employment for the Employees Retirement System of Texas, also known as ERS. Tim, thank you so much for coming back to Behind the Markets. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me back. We've been, uh, it was maybe five, four or five years ago, we first talked with you. Um, maybe you could tell our, our listeners a little bit about the Employment Retirement System of Texas and what you oversee on the International Equities team. Okay, sure. Uh, it's a $30 billion trust. Uh, I work in the public equities or stock market division, which is about 40% of the trust. Uh, we're a bit unusual for a public pension plan in that we do a lot of the stock picking in-house versus outsourcing that. So I oversee the international area of public equities, and we break that into two large portfolios. One is emerging markets, which I have day-to-day supervision over, uh, uh, pulling the trigger on various stock decisions in countries, et cetera. And then I also oversee the team, which is on the developed international markets. That's uh, developed Europe and Asia, including uh, countries like Japan and Australia. Um, And then within the trust, we have other various asset classes. We're quite diverse, Um, hedge funds, private equity, public real estate, private real estate, and uh, credit. Interesting setup, um, and sort of interesting that you like you guys like to do the the portfolio management in house. And uh, any commentary there on when you think about the you know the one of the big narratives is active versus passive. How you guys think about the how much would just be a passive mandate? How much would be active? Where you you know how do you think about th- those allocations? Yes, uh, we 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 don't exclusively run everything in house. We'd run about seventy percent in house. We can do that very cheaply with a high degree of transparency. I would say our the the portfolios we run are somewhat core like in in that um, we, we use MSCI benchmarks. We have value. Uh, exposure, we have growth exposure, but very active bottoms up stock selection, and we complement our in-house effort um, with set call it riskier, more concentrated strategies where we do outsource uh, about thirty percent of the assets. Yeah, interesting. And and would you say there's a a philosophy behind any you know when in your tilts when you describe like when you guys are you mentioned value and growth sort of two opposite sides of the coin. Um, and right. Do you guys have a leaning one way or the other? We do. Uh, I would say most of the people that feed into the funds are somewhat earnings based and uh, revenue growth. So uh, that does give us a little bit of a growth tilt which has been beneficial. It won't be forever, but growth style has handily outperformed value for, oh, feels like close to a decade. Sure. So we, we do have a growth leaning, but it's not extreme. Uh, and, and when you think about you know, mentioning you oversee emerging markets versus the developed markets, one of the things we talk a lot about is, you know, the U.S. being the high multiple country around the world. Is your is your segment of the uh, the mandates getting more traction? How, how do you guys look at U.S. versus foreign today? Yeah, uh, we've been wrong on this for a while. The, the U.S. and particularly U.S. large companies have has just been a freight train for 10 years. Now, luckily, markets in general are up and that. We like absolute positive returns that helps us pay the bills, of course. Yeah. But uh, we have um, 
Oh, we've been early on more aggressively allocating to international markets, feeling that there would be some mean reversion and some catch-up. We feel like even more now that that's the case. Um, and so we do have a little bit of a tilt towards international, including the developed markets like Europe and Japan and the emerging markets. Interesting. You know, now, about f maybe five or six years ago, you and I got to know each other a little bit, and we talked about all the factors people look at in emerging markets, and there's all the things on value and, and dividends that Wisdom Tree tended to focus on. Mm -hmm. and, and we talked about sort of one interesting factor that there wasn't a lot of interest in, or not, not a lot of work around, we could, I should say, sort of state ownership, you know, the government ownership. And we did some work around looking at what are the factors, you know, that come with state ownership. You tended to get a lot of banks, energy companies, not so much tech and consumer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I want to thank you for all the effort around that. That's sort of now a really interesting concept on these, these ex-state-owned indexes that have seen a lot of interest. Any any commentary on, on how you guys think about state ownership in, in emerging markets? Sure. I, I would say just philosophically back to my, my approach, I kind of, uh, I like to do more with less. <clears throat> And so this concept of exclusion-based investing or what you don't do or avoid is just as important as what you do. Uh, and it's really impactful in emerging markets. So, uh, you know, avoiding mistakes and extreme uh, price moves to the downside. And, and uh, I was reading the Wall Street Journal one day, and I came across uh, an article on these SOEs or state-owned enterprises. And they had a really interesting table. And it was comparing some of the big Chinese energy companies to Exxon. And they said they were all enormous companies, you know, $400 billion in revenue. But what stood out was the number of employees. So $400 billion in revenue, Exxon Mobil has had 75,000 employees at the time. And say PetroChina, again, about $400 billion in revenue, but 544,000 employees. So that was a little bit of the, the Newton and the Apple moment to say, but why? I wonder if you could really do some work and what would to identify state-owned enterprises. There's a little art and science there. And what if you just avoided them altogether? Would your results be better? And, uh, you know, Wisdom Tree came by and we, we sort of started talking about this theoretically, the uh, sort of back of the napkin type. And the, the, I think the more we dug and, and were able to put some numbers to, around it, it seemed like a, a very provocative powerful concept, this exclusion-based and excluding the SOEs in particular. And uh, yeah, you, then you guys went and did the heavy lifting in terms of uh, numbers and investing in the, in the product, and it sounds like it's been pretty darn successful after five years. Yeah, and it's interesting, um, you know, the, the, what you could say, like, is there this state ownership factor, you know, like, is, and, and when you, you know, we put it all together, we tried to not make any big country tilts, you know, in the, in the index, you didn't want to just remove China because a lot of the state-owned companies right. were from China. And that was good feedback from you is like, don't just make me bet against China. Um, right, and, right. and, you know, so try to have sector caps. So you're not just also, you know, being very, very underweight, the banks and energy, but you keep it constrained. Um, and so it becomes like this enhanced beta-like index where you are removing maybe 25, 30% of the broad EM index, but you get a sort of growthy core EM. Um, and it's been, you know, to your point on sort of looking at revenue growth, that is a lot of what you get is you get the tilts to the tech and consumer and away from those traditional value sectors. So I like it from that perspective. But the, even within sectors, you do see an impact of the non-state-owned sort of having better growth metrics and better profitability metrics than the state-owned. So it's in even interesting within sectors. 
Yeah, and I, you know, of course, ESG environment, social and, and governance is is a really big thing that I, I think is here to stay, and this, in a way. Uh, represents some uh, effort to, to emphasize good governance, right? Yeah. Because uh, uh, going back to the example, in some cases, these SOEs are national jobs programs, and, and they have, uh, it could be right or wrong, but a, a different agenda perhaps than uh, maximizing value for shareholders in Austin, Texas. And, and then the other thing is, I think EEM is very large, and as you say, multiple countries, sectors, uh, the MSCI core index has about 1,300 stocks. That's uh, that's going to continue to go up as the China A shares uh, come in more and more. But uh, you know, it's a it's it's a good way to to sort of put it on not, not autopilot, but be a, a bit active in a deliberate way without having to pick stock by stock. And um, it, I think it's really important. Again, emerging markets really benefits from active management, from what you do and what you don't do. And I, I, I think it's don't just invest in emerging markets. You need to invest within, and this is a very helpful way to do it. We're, we're talking with Tim Reynolds, senior portfolio manager, head of international equities for the employment for the Employees Retirement System of Texas (ERS). Uh, and, and and Tim, is there within when you think about your allocations within emerging markets today? Is there countries you find interesting? Is there? I mean, I don't know if you picked up in a little bit. We were talking with Andy Rothman about China. Uh, do you, how do you look at what's going on in China today? With you guys having a really sort of perpetual, you know, forever type mandate, right? We think China is important, and, and uh, I guess that's somewhat obvious. The second largest economy, um, and I, I people, uh, this is a little bump in the road with the coronavirus, and I don't want to minimize that, but I, I think the market is right to kind of look beyond that. That it probably will get worse before it gets better, but it's a transient issue that we don't think is anything. We're not attempting to navigate around that, and. Uh, Oh, the trade war, call it, with the U.S. I, I, I don't think that ever really goes away, but I think it can really be minimized as these things go go in the headlines, and it's the story every day. And it just sort of fades from the headline. I, I think China is going to continue to invest in, 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 the, in themselves, and they're going to continue to try to, call it, move up the value-add curve from being the manufacturer to the world to making semiconductors, making cars, making complicated products uh, that put people to work, but also have, are much higher margin. So, and uh, China's so large, you can always find opportunities. You can find lots of attractive companies that are growing, that are at single digit multiples, uh, dividends. It, it can be opaque. You do have to roll up your sleeves to, to, get, to get to meet the companies and, and get to feel comfortable. But China is a very big part of the portfolio, and I think it, it will be. Um, one country that usually is a big overweight for most active portfolio managers is India. And um, we cut back on that. They had some credit issues uh, in the system. The, the economy had really slowed, uh, and the government was strapped for revenues. But we think that's starting to cycle through, and India is becoming really interesting. So uh, in terms of new ideas and uh, where we're looking, we're, we're turning over more rocks in India. Very interesting. Um, 
I want to come back to the, your point on the on the ESG element and, and how else you guys are thinking about it. I mean, interestingly, when you look at the state-owned, you do get a lot of <clears throat> energy companies. So I've often said the ex-state-owned concept gets you the E and the G mm-hmm. uh, because you get the governance on the sort of better you know people think about profits. You get the E with sort of being underweight most of the energy. Uh, how else do you guys think? Do you guys have ESG factoring in? Do you think ESG is a positive alpha factor towards what how you guys do that? Or is it just better... Um, it's just something you have to do today. We don't have to. Um, I, I, to your point, I would say investors have always paid some attention to the E and the G. Uh, so with the E, you don't want companies with asbestos liabilities or chemicals and swamps and things like that. So you know you always dig for that sort of thing and avoid it. And then good governance is something you seek. Um, at times, the rate of change on governance can be an investment opportunity. I would just point to Russia, where uh, deep, deep governance issues, uh, and that's why the stocks trade at four, five, six times PEs. There's a heavy discount, always has been, but all you need is a little improvement in their dividend payout ratio or a little more, uh, you know, caution with their capital expenditures because they're, they're sort of forced to invest back into Russia or the tax rate. So little changes, little improvement. We saw that with the, the big natural gas company, Gazprom. They did a, a little positive move in their dividend and the stock went up 60 or 70 percent. So sometimes imp- the rate of change or improvement in governance can, can be a catalyst. Well, yeah, we see that in our, our high dividend indexes, you know, sort of the opposite of the ex-state owned. It's got a lot of the Big uh, big energy companies, you do see a disproportionate amount from Russia, um, where it may be something like uh, I'm just I'm just looking at the weights now, but it's it, it's it's something like um, well double digit Russia weights because of that high dividend that you're talking about. Right, right, yeah, and then you know it's very difficult to predict, but when things move from the bad side of the ledger and a couple just move to not so bad, you you can make money that way. Um, do you know one of the big narratives in the U.S. And I don't know how much you're 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 you guys are debating the U.S. tech versus China tech, but you know the it's been a nonstop run for U.S. tech, and you know th- there's this sort of big picture, you know, of where's the future, uh, big competition in sort of in, in data, artificial intelligence, and you have like the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons versus the Alibabas, Baidu's, Ten Cents of the world. Uh, do you how closely do you follow the China tech story, the valuations there, how they compared to the U.S. and their ultimate revenue growth? I mean, you you think about artificial intelligence all relying on data. China's going to have a lot of data. the The future could be China tech oriented. Do you have a, a view on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you're going to see. Uh, there's not a, most of the tech is more on the internet side and the internet and the mobile internet is very robust and in a lot of ways they're more advanced than than the u.s in terms of what you can do with your smartphone now it might be if you feel like you're being watched but um and you are being watched you are being watched and but there's advantages in in that too in terms of all that data and managing traffic lights etc so but they, they have very powerful companies in that area less so in the traditional hardware and um, semiconductors but there's a lot of that in Taiwan and one thing that's interesting that we're seeing with as the tension is there uh, it's mitigated a bit but 
you're starting to see supply chain diversification. So if you're an American company, you made everything in China, you're a little more nervous about that. And if you're a Chinese company, depending on U.S. semiconductors, you're a little more nervous about that. And so we've seen some market share go to, say, Taiwanese companies for Chinese handsets. So there's an opportunity there. I think that's there to stay. It's going to trend that way that people are diversifying their supply chain. And again, uh, China is going to continue to try to move up the value-add sophistication curve on making things like semiconductors and even biotechnology products. Michelle, any questions from you jumping in? It's been quiet so far this program. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to follow up a little bit. Uh, you mentioned you know, China and India being such a big part of emerging market. When you look at within these two countries in selecting stocks, like how do you have – what kind of approach? Like, Are they similar or different? Uh, very similar. Um, we tend to use quantitative tools to – Oh, call it find the needle in the haystack. It's it's too big. You can't keep up with all the information on all the industries and all the countries. So bottoms up approach. Um, but we you know have an open open mind on where good ideas come from. We do travel. We do go to conferences. We do meet companies. We do interact with other investors. Uh, but heavy users of some proprietary quantitative tools that help us manage, monitor, and find new ideas. So, and that that does cut across all countries. Um, in terms of, you also mentioned uh, you're responsible for the developed. Uh, so uh, for the China, it seems like, you know, just like the previous uh, guest, uh, you're focused on the consumer demand, focus on, um, you know, the, the, the good governance. But in terms of developed, like, you know, Japan, the Europe, like what are the factors you're looking? I, I would say very much the same. Both teams have, uh, both portfolios have uh, full-time dedicated teams of five members, a lead portfolio manager and, and, and four analysts. So similar approach, users of quantitative tools, you, you travel, get out there, meet companies. Uh, we actually are fortunate on the developed international side to have a pretty good amount of uh, particularly European com- companies that come through Austin. So we don't even have to leave the office. That That's great to get the local perspective. Um, they are run similarly, but by different teams. So in some way, it's a little bit like a quantumental, like you have the quant, but you also try to meet with the companies? Yes, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, in terms of the international, sorry, I have so many questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ex on idea five years ago was, you know, probably not very, not many people were thinking about it. Um, still not many people are thinking about it. It's still it, not but many people, but, but, <laughs> but, but much more. Yeah, I'm so glad uh, that, that, I mean, coming from China, that is just a great idea. Um, I, I do want to follow up a little bit on like hedging. For international portfolios, hedging is a big part. Like, do you do hedging? And in terms of hedging, like, do you do emerging market differently from international markets? We don't have a uh, an active hedging program on the currency level. Uh, very complicated and expensive to do that on the emerging market portfolio. Very possible on the developed with the euro and the yen in particular. Uh, we have chosen not to do that. That's been a bit of a mistake going back, but it, you know, in terms of allocation, because the dollar's been strong. But uh, we have not tended to do that. 
Yeah, I like to you know I I like to talk about that topic uh, that uh, you know currency can be volatile and, <laughs> and unexpected, but it's definitely now always the timing question of when to do it. People always sort of worry about putting it on that they've sort of missed it, uh, and that maybe where everybody is today. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, it kind of goes back to the the, the the U.S. large cap trade has has been kind of the only trade in in hindsight you needed, uh, and yeah. the dollar dollar has been very powerful and. It, it is an issue. I, I, at times, I do fold that into countries in allocations. And uh, uh, currencies are difficult to value, and, and there's lots of different models. And so, if those models are telling me the Turkish lira or the Brazilian hei is is five or even eight percent over undervalued, that's just so what? Uh, you know, that's that's not a precise calculation. Now, if right. it says if it says thirty five. And there have been times like that with the Russian ruble and the Brazilian currency where, okay, maybe on a total return basis, either if it's undervalued, that's more interesting, or if it's flagging extremely overvalued, that's something I want to avoid. So it, it, it does come into the total return calculation, but usually it's, that's false precision in, in managing a currency. But, um, you know, in general, in emerging markets, U.S. Treasury rate, central bank rate policy is, is important, and so is the dollar. We sort of final minute countdown here, maybe a little bit over a minute. Any when you know working at a a big retirement program, any commentary on just the state of the general retirement systems across the country? How how robust are they? Do you think there's going to be some funding questions going forward? Just any final commentary on where you think your your peers are. Well, uh, there's published numbers. Of course, they can be changed dramatically with assumptions. But uh, I would just say, with with interest rate policy and rates so low, the concept of final financial repression is real. And so you have to work harder and maybe take a little more risk to generate your your actuarial target. Yeah, and and so, so the, the you think people are just being forced out that equity curve? They can't they can't get their returns in bonds, and they got to take equities. Well, I would I would say the big beneficiary and fund flows are are loosely called alternatives. Yeah, and and so uh, you know you come back reinvented in your career as a private equity manager the last ten years. That is, that is what everybody <laughs> should have done. <laughs> or. Yeah, and rather than and we 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 have a very active and very good private equity program, and it, it's been very helpful for our returns. But uh, when you hear the deals and the managers, it's like let's just buy the manager. That's, that's a tremendous economics for, for sure. the good for the good ones. For sure, this has been a great conversation. We've been talking with Tim Reynolds, senior portfolio manager, head of international equities for the Employment Employees Retirement System of, of Texas, the ERS there in Texas. Tim, thank you so much for all your good feedback over the years. Uh, we appreciate all that you. You, we should discuss before and again on the program today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Bye. We, we'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Mm-hmm.